And welcome to Bonditch by Ian Bird. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to read some more about the story, please do visit our website, which is www.bonditch.wordpress.com. And now it's the start of chapter two. How to live happily and with security for the rest of your very long life. Fourth gobbit, rolling the bones. Elliot left Kataki's office. For the first time in her life, she didn't know what her opinion should be. She had never felt as uncertain as she had, sitting opposite that impressive lady promising her a fortune, so she had fallen back against tried and tested methodologies and told her to go fuck herself. If all she'd wanted was to be rich, she'd be rich by now. Yeah? Michael and Dove didn't see it that way. What are you talking about? said Michael. She wanted to pay me off with some pocket money, just like she said she paid off my parents. And you believed her? Dove was the suspicious sort, by which Elliot divined that he was the sort who de- demonstrated sufficient suspicion to appear arrogant and aloof, but not so suspicious that he wasn't occasionally rooked and gulled by the ones who really meant it. Like an amputee, she felt an itch where she usually felt Dove's boyfriend. Everything my parents had was given them by this bone-ditch bitch. Do you believe her? Dove said. What are you saying? They turned to Dove. He shrugged. This is some scummy office behind a video shop. Does it look like somewhere where a multi-million pound life-changing megalomaniac would work? But the lawyer, she showed me the papers. Everything came from Bonditch. Well, Dove said, you think there's someone behind a liaison? A week later, Elliot met the fiend. Then, two years later. Elliot had that familiar ache in her bones that told her that she had actually fallen asleep and that this had been a mistake. She pulled herself up her guts nauseous and her spine threatening not to support her skull. Nothing was supporting her skull these days. She sat back down again. If she had stayed awake, she wouldn't have felt this bad now. The air was abrasive on her skin, nerve endings cramped straight to her marrow. This sickness was the sickness of having snagged something on the other side of consciousness and then having dragged it back with her before she was strong enough to deal with it properly when she woke up. She was infected by half-dreams. On your feet! The voice from behind the massive door sounded like it was coming from God. That door swung open and the air that rushed in at her felt like an attack. The woman in the blue uniform stood there staring at her. On your feet. The dead walking again. Against all her expectations, Elliot managed to leave the cell and stagger to the main desk. She gave a washed out and wounded smile to the woman in blue and the man in blue sitting beside her, both of whom had judgmental distaste where their faces should have been. She signed something to say that she lived at this address and that she answered to this name. They would be in touch, they assured her. We know who you are now, Miss Haley Sacrum, said their judgmental distaste. Elliot Rent left the police station. It was a grey morning, but there was sunlight in there somewhere and it felt like agony against the back of her eye sockets. Just say no, she thought to herself. She found an alleyway and was sick all the way down it. You'd have been out a lot earlier if you'd told them who I was. Elliot Rent, who had aged a decade in the last two years, wiped the filth from the side of her mouth and made her face move into the appropriate configuration. Hello, Jeff, she said. You look like shit, Haley. Nope, I see things just fine, like they're made of glass. Are you still high? he asked. Just buy me a coffee. Jeff insisted on them walking for 20 minutes before stopping at a cafe. He didn't want anyone 
by which he meant the police, spotting him with her. That was wise. Her body chemistry had been badly abused the night before, was probably still illegal, and now people knew who she was. People, she thought for not the first time, were fucking idiots. That's better, she said. You look a bit less... Jeff waved his hands as if to indicate something that should know better, or at least to clear the rank air between them that was at least 50% her fault. You flatterer. How did you get away? Jeff smiled. You know what they say, the only way to be sure that you don't get picked up by the police is to be the one to open the door to them. Jeff Holliman, did you do a deal with the devil? I am the devil, love. Ask anyone. Oh, there you are, said Elliot. Offer me an apple and I'll throw up on you. He had arrived at Terry's party about two hours after her, which would have made it at about one in the morning. She had been wasted by then, but still with enough of her life's blood surging to recognise him, introduce herself, and then get herself noticed. The police had broken in at about three, but by then she had already made the deal and pushed the hook into him. It was half seven now. He had been there when the police had arrived, but had managed to slip out without getting arrested. He had that kind of face, she guessed. Elliot had to imagine that there were all sorts of tests they made the police go through to enable them to disregard the promise made by that kind of face, so he probably had some kind of pull as well. Given how he had also had a pocket full of ketamine that she had just sold him, he clearly had his own gravitational field. And he looked like he had managed to fit eight hours sleep into the four hours she had spent in the police cell. Fruits of a clear conscience, or at least an energetic one, and one with a fast metabolism for guilt. So why are you buying me coffee then, your satanic majesty? Shouldn't you be pitchforking sinners somewhere? I thought you'd want this. Jeff slid a small bundle of banknotes over to her. You're a quick worker. It's easier to get things done when the police are busy elsewhere. Booking your accomplices, yes, Elliot finished. I can leave if you prefer a better view across your moral high ground. No, said Elliot. Stay, it's freezing and I could use some infernal combustion. Jeff smirked. Terry had warned her that he would be insufferable, arrogant and full of his own talents and small charms, but Elliot had met the real devil and she had to admit there was actually a little bit of the fiend in this everyday crook. It gave her hope, a hope in hell, she supposed. So, have you got any more you want to sell? Jeff asked. Depends, what are you offering me? How much are you after? he asked. Silly, you don't deal with the devil for money, everyone's got money. What are you after? Elliot reached out and grabbed Jeff's hand. He tried to pull back but was too slow. He gripped his fist. Introductions. Jeff's hand was missing three fingers. Meeting the fiend had stunned Elliot Rent, smashed her understanding to pieces, left her reeling. She had immediately lost her way in every sense. Unable to concentrate on her classes, unable to pay for her classes, Elliot had dropped out of university and been dragged away to whatever town she could afford to live in. Like some anti-Moses, she was allowed to see hell, but not to enter it. The tawdry gravitational pull that snared her then dragged her away to mundane suburbs, away from the flames that might have inspired her to the smothering beiges of just getting by. Life had passed. She had been unable to climb aboard it. Friends had been disappointed in her and then forgotten about her. She rejected the world and its madness, she said. She didn't fail at life. She just refused to play the sick, weird game it had presented her with. If life had no rules, she was going to write the rules that didn't exist. At this age, her mother was pregnant with her having already met the man she would spend the rest of her life with. Her mother had traded any doubts for wealth and security. Yeah, fuck that. Jeff was freaked out about her and his fingers, more so when she put one of the few he had remaining into her mouth and grinned at him through sharp teeth. At times like this, it occurs to you that the girl you're with might have given you a false name. Even after a ketamine night, Elliot still felt dreamy and far away and hungry. She made him take her back to his place. 
Once you've tunned bite marks left on the devil by something far worse than the devil, it becomes a lot harder to give the devil his due, Elliot was finding, and a lot easier to see through his magic. Jeff lived in a tired old flat just above Brewer Street. By the time they got back there, the market traders were in full swing. The devil's friends and neighbours were buying fruit and veg and ducking into record stores. The devil had a Pulp Fiction poster on his wall, it seemed, and a Manic Street Preacher's LP on his coffee table. Turned out that the devil was adorable. So she grabbed Jeff and pushed him onto his sofa. The sofa was also his bed, which was convenient. Later, at about three in the afternoon, she finally woke up and felt semblances of the real her around the edges of her thinking. It was easier taking risks when chasing the fiend on drugs, she moves to herself, not entirely avoiding the obvious. Jeff Holloman was still asleep. So she shook him awake. Tell me the story then. Jeff scowled at her. I don't like being made fun of. You might be surprised. I might believe you. He paused. He thought. I was in Bali, he said. A mate had connected me to this man who was into some stuff that might be good to have. How long ago was this, she asked. About nine months. And? We were waiting for the man on this beach. It was late. He was late. We fell asleep, and when I woke up, words were sticking in his throat like gobbets of meat. There was this thing straddling me. At first I thought it was this girl I'd planned on meeting up with later, but no. No, I didn't think it was her, but it seemed to be her. It felt like it could have been her, but it, but it wasn't. And I thought it was a dream, but it wasn't that either. It, She was sitting across me, her legs either side of me, and she was in this long, raggedy black dress. It wasn't covering her arms or her shoulders, and it hung down in front of her chest, but it, she, she was just bones. Her hair was hanging down over her face, long and ragged and black as well, but she was pushing something into her mouth, under her hair. His hands were shaking and his voice sounded dry. He was lying next to her, but it was obvious that he was thousands of miles away, trapped on a beach. Something else other than Elliot had also pushed hooks into him to drag him back to her, something that hadn't been similarly weakened with flesh and skin. And I'm sick of what everyone says. It's what happened, right? She made this weird noise, he said, like a chopping noise. And I looked again and she had my hand in her, in her face and she was biting on it and his skin, weak and vulnerable and soft and attractive to predators, was cold and clammy to her touch. It was a strangely sexual sensation. Someone had gotten to him first. Someone had already broken this boy in. And I pulled my hand away and it was vomiting blood everywhere and my fingers were, were gone. And she just laughed and she ran back into the night and that, that, that was it. I couldn't go to the doctors, not with what I'd been taking. My mates weren't any help. They were terrified of me. They said I must have done it to myself and I never saw them again. I bandaged myself, got some antibiotics. I left it behind. It was obvious that the only thing he had left behind was the meat itself. Everything else was still very close. It was as if the creature were in the room with them. Elliot felt her there, her beautiful fiend. What do you think she was? He licked a finger stump. Elliot got the impression it was something he did now for luck instead of making the sign of a cross. He shrugged. A warning, no question. Not much of a warning, she said. You're still dealing. No, a warning to be better at it. If I'm going to be what I am, I have to be better at all of it. That chimed with something Elliot had considered recently. But it's not your day job, right? She gestured to the array of computers taking up the corner of his room. She fucked up my typing, that's for sure, but I'm still pretty good. I just have to be more careful what I type. What do you do? she asked. It doesn't matter, he said. Tell me. Are you really interested? I'm interested in everything except sport. Have you heard of the Y2K bug? 
Jeff said. No. It's this thing everyone's worried about, terrified about. You'll hear a lot about it over the next couple of years, leading up to 2000. A lot of people like me, computer programmers, have been recruited to work on it. There's a ton of money floating around it. I make more on the Y2K thing than I do with drugs. What? It's true. The drugs are just an escape. The work is about trying to save the world. What are you talking about? Short version, okay? Computers know the date, right? They all have these little calculators in them that tell them what day it is, what tomorrow is going to be, blah, 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 right? Except a little while ago, they figured out that all the computers, like all the computers in the world, they all have a DDMMYY calendar. Know what that is? No. A calendar that has two digits to record the day, two to record the month, and two for the year. Jeff paused. So? Elliot asked. So what do you think will happen in three years' time, on the day after the 31st of December 1999? Zero, one, zero, one, zero, zero. But as far as the computers are concerned, the next day in the future will have been a hundred years ago. I don't understand. The computer knows that it has something to do, right? Every computer has a dozen more, more schedules. Its calendar books in all those little jobs, diarises them. Then suddenly it's being told to do something a hundred years in the past. What do you think is going to happen then? Elliot shrugged. What? What will happen? Nobody knows. The computer might just take it in its stride and ignore the weirdness, or it might fall over. But those jobs aren't all little jobs. Some of them are working out when food will go off. Some of them are working out when medicine will go off. Some of them are calculating how old everyone in the world is and what access they might need to healthcare. And some of them are working out where all the aeroplanes in the sky are going to be. And some of them are making sure that all the safety systems are working in all the nuclear power plants in the world. Elliot looked confused. Exactly, Jeff said. That's not, I mean, that's just silly. They just revealed, said Jeff, that in 1983, in September, the Soviet computers detected missiles flying their way from America. They would have launched a counterattack, but this one guy in a Soviet bunker thought that it could be a mistake, so he didn't tell his bosses. Because he didn't pass it on, no one else had to decide what the computers were telling them to do, which was lucky. At least one of those other guys would have wanted to have returned fire. Next day, it turns out the computers misread light bouncing off high-altitude clouds. Jeff raised his mutilated hand. Ragged teeth marks were still there amidst the scars. Elliot knew that she had smiled at the teeth which had left those marks. When it ends, Jeff said, whenever it ends, however it ends, it's going to feel ridiculous and we aren't going to believe our eyes. Her mouth was dry. So what are you doing? I work for a finance company in the city. I'm one of their programmers. I get to test software, run projects, manage systems. I'm helping to run our Y2K project. The banks recognise the threat of all this and are investing accordingly. Nobody wants to wake up from their New Year's party and find out that all the world's wealth has been scaled back to where it was a hundred years ago. But I'm getting to use my influence to expand our work to other networks. Energy firms, government departments. We're getting the word out and sharing learning. It's, it's quite beautiful, actually. You're all going to feel pretty stupid on the 1st of January, said Elliot. That's sort of the point, isn't it? How many times do you think that the world hasn't ended? Do you feel like gambling everything on the fact that the world is a sensible and a reasonable place? Want to roll that dice? Elliot Rent knew that Jeff was right. She had tried to ignore the weird once upon a time and it had almost killed her for her rudeness. She believed the world was divided between those who recognised the weird and were changed by it and those who ignored the weird and were eaten alive by it when they turned their backs. Elliot's lowest ebb had been about seven months before. She had been there in the world but no one had been able to see her 
and she hadn't been able to feel a thing. She had been drinking pretty heavily by that point, and the drugs she had chosen hadn't been mind-expanding so much as consciousness smothering. Fewer friends, fewer commitments, fewer interests. Her world had been getting smaller and smaller, amputated by bloodless inches, and by that point she had felt that she was left perched on a pitifully small rock in a bleak, black, universal void, able to see her own shuddering self just over the horizon. She was becoming the fiend that was creeping up behind her, getting closer with every desiccating collapse that shrank her world still smaller. Just do your best. Just say no. These commandments from her childhood were foul and mendacious mantras now, pregnant instructions from people who had loved and nurtured her, who had given her the means to feel love and connection, now revealed to be despicable stillborn lies. The enormity of her leviathan grief for her parents, like an endless echo where there had once been a warm embrace in the dark and the certain knowledge of love and faith, now shaped her philosophy, threatened all the conclusions she would ever draw in the future. Her parents had encouraged her and inspired her, and in preparation for what? A lifetime suckling on the bone ditch's dead tit, the subtotal of her parents' ambition. The fiend would always be there to laugh at your plans. The booze and the drugs quelled most of her outrage, but prevented her from moving past it. Nights grew longer, shadows grew darker, nothing mattered. It had been a Saturday afternoon in late September. She had been lying under a tree in a park, half watching some children playing. Their shrieks were worse than animal and they caught like hooks on her flesh. This is why the most successful fiends wear no flesh, of course. In her hands were a pair of dye. She rolled them over and over again. She was drunk and exhausted and her brain couldn't settle or focus or concentrate but it seemed that the dice were always coming up with twos and that seemed wrong to her. It occurred to her that she was 22 and that her mother's birthday was the 2nd of February. It occurred to her that she had lived two lives, one before the car crash and one after. It occurred to her that everyone had two faces, the one we showed the world and the implacable secret unchanging one made of bone that lurked beneath the blood. Two, 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 two. A heartbeat. The children kept screaming. Do you feel like gambling? Seven months before, about a year and a half after her parents had died, Elliot Rent lay under a late summer tree and decided, if the dice roll twos again, I'll give up. Wait, wait, don't be glib. This is real. This is a real gamble, be sure. Elliot Rent looked at the dice in the palm of her hand. Die. A pair of dice, lost. Roll a couple of twos and you have my permission to give up. No judgment, no more cruelty, just a quiet surrender and an end to all of this. Early dice were made of bone, she knew, the ankle bones of sheep and goats. The Greeks called them astragali. Before they were used for gambling, die were used to cast the future. They were sacred tools. Shall we hunt to the north or to the south? You could live or die by what they told you. Shaman would carry die. It was called cleromancy. Roll the die, Elliot. You're ready to roll the die. You aren't making a decision to end your life. You're simply looking ahead to see if you're going to die today. She was just so alone in the world and nothing made sense or amounted to anything. So she rolled the dice. A two and a three. She wanted to cry. Across the park was a bench, and sitting on that bench was a man with grey skin and green eyes. He was wearing a beautifully tailored white dress shirt under a fustian waistcoat with sharp lapels. Over this, in spite of the warmth of the day, he was wearing a slightly old-fashioned black frock coat. Immaculate. He was immaculate. His black hair, spattered with grey, was tightly cropped to his skull. His black shoes had a fine polish. He smiled at Elliot, stood up and walked over to her, passing through the crowd of children as if they weren't there. 
You've made the right decision, he said, and his voice was calm and reasonable and correct. She couldn't say anything. Something was choking her throat, like gobbets of meat. There are such things as right decisions, he continued. The dice isn't random. It has to land where it has to land. It could not land anywhere else. He picked up one of the dice. Astragali, he prescribed, reading her mind. Shall we start with your Greek? Elliot had all but given up on Kataki Eleison. It was an alias, had to be. Shortly before she had met the fiend, Elliot had spent a whole morning in a library falling down that particular rabbit hole. Indian given name, Greek surname, but no trace anywhere of anyone called Kataki Eleison. And the London office space had been sublet to Bone Ditch on a short-term lease that had expired shortly after. Elliot had gone back a week after meeting the fiend and found the building deserted. It had turned out that it hadn't even been sublet to Bone Ditch. The agreement had been signed with a charity called One Itch. Rooting around at the Charity Commission, she had found out that One Itch was a political campaigning organisation. They specialised in paying legal fees for political activists, usually activists involved in campaigns for women's rights, gender equality, family planning. Sometimes these activists were arrested for being a nuisance, sometimes for sabotage, assault, attempted murder, mayhem. They represented people around the planet only occasionally in the UK. That one itch was apparently a reference to a poem from the late 1800s, Heaven's no prize when you feel that one itch. She read the poem. It was written a hundred years before and it was execrable. Some talentless hack called B.D. Holloman had somehow managed to publish it, much to the excitement of no one ever. One itch didn't have any personnel details on record, but the literature lodged at the Charity Commission said that they offered scholarships for individuals working in the field. Potentially that was the role Eleison had officially held. But there seemed no way of getting in touch with them. They were hidden, occult. Jeff the Junkie, meanwhile, wasn't famous. But Elliot Rent had changed her addiction from alcohol to credit cards, and after the late summer day in the park and the threat of death, she had travelled widely and wildly. She heard things now that most people would never know. On Giga Beach, in Bali, five months after Elliot had rolled the dice, she happened to hear a story about a British criminal who had been almost eaten alive a few months before, by the Ibu Tenkorak. What's an Ibu Tenkorak? she had asked. A tourist story, her friend Raman had told her. It means mother skull. The story is that she lives in the forest and comes out of the night to steal something precious from you, something you can't live without. With your treasure lost, your life begins again, changed. Who was the criminal? she asked. Just some junkie. He had a bad trip and injured himself badly. He had heard the story of the Ibu Tenkorak and was convinced he had had a close encounter. What was his name? I actually remember that. It suited him. Hollow Man. Elliot whistled slowly through bone teeth. You cannot live life in a garden. Time soothes with peace, survives a peace, but thrives on these torrential turmoil threats. When skin crawls to bite a rotting wound stitch, heaven's no prize when you feel that one itch. Elliot Rent found Jeff Holloman through his real life as a computer programmer rather than his half-life as a drug dealer, but it was obvious the best way to sidle close to this mutilated devil and convince him that they had something in common under their skin would be to approach him from the sinister. I've never seen a computer this big, Elliot smiled in the devil's flat. It's a company machine. I have a direct link to the bank. I can access their systems remotely. That's quite a responsibility, Jeff. I don't like crowds. I prefer to work from home. He had arrived at the party late, and he had vanished before it all went to hell. It made sense to her that the devil would be agoraphobic. Let me ask you a question, Elliot asked. Your computer bug work. You started it after you were nearly eaten alive in Bali, didn't you? Jeff didn't look her in the eye. Yes, he admitted. 
Fancy another gamble? He smiled. I bet you can't find someone for me, even with all your fancy machines. What do I get if I win? I'll arrange for you to meet up again with the Ibu Tenkarak, but this time on your terms. This isn't funny. Everything's funny, Jeff, but this is a bet, not a threat. What do you say? And if I lose? I'll just tell her where you live and she can pick her own time to visit you. Who do you want me to find? I don't know her name, but she calls herself Katakia Lazon. To be continued. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to read more, please visit www.boneditch.wordpress.com.